morning, everyone. Uh, we'll be reading from Matthew 11:25 to 30 today. Um, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you the rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Miles. Um, yeah, uh, just a quick note on the, on the budget. Um, we try to make a practice of, of putting this in front of y'all just in a spirit of transparency. We, we really want y'all to know what's going on financially within the church. If there are any questions at all at any time about the funds, how we're using the funds, um, plans, um, so on and so forth, um, you can always reach out to me. Um, and just want to shout out to the folks who volunteer their time for the finance committee, Jason, Callie. Uh, I'm probably missing, I'm missing a few um, who do the things like creating spreadsheets that would make my eyes go cross-eyed and, and making sure we're staying on track. So um, thank you very much to them as well. Um, so Cameron's on vacation today. Ironically, conveniently, the day that we're speaking of the gift of rest. So Cameron, if you're, if you're watching right now, shut the computer off and go, go sit on the beach. Um, but we are uh, honored to be joined by Ian Cornell. Um, Ian is a, uh, a Dorf Hope OG uh, since the beginning, right, Ian? Uh, yeah, he uh, um, kind of inadvertently accidentally started a house church that ended up getting folded back into to Dorf Hope and has now been on staff at Dorf Hope Southeast for, for two years, two years now. And um, we're just incredibly excited and blessed to have Ian uh, here to, the, to this morning to, to share his heart with us. So, um, Ian, without, without further ado. We'll do it. Yeah. Thank you, Alexander. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ian Cornell, one of the teaching pastors at Southeast. Um, and yeah, long time door hoper. It's actually, I, I got to just open up with um, just, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be sharing from this stage. Is this, is this mic okay? The, the Britney Spears mics are always a little bit swirly. They, they turn on you when you need them the most. Um, yeah, been at Door Hope since 2010. Been on staff for two years, uh, preaching there um, at Southeast. And it's just, it's really cool to be here. This is kind of full circle. I'd, I went to this church for years. Um, a friend and I actually replaced these windows above the doors years ago. Uh, Wesley and I used to live together. Josh Wilder and I used to live together. Ben Schultz and I used to live together. So this is just a a really cool like full circle moment uh, to be here uh, with with y'all. I am so tempted to tell the wedding suit story, but I'll I'll leave. It's a very long story, but I accidentally, accidentally, really accidentally wore Ben Schultz's wedding suit to a wedding. I danced. I ate. I had some wine. I didn't get a drop of ketchup or vino or nothing on it. I went to an after party with some friends and Ben was there playing ping pong and he said, 
is that my suit? And I said, no, man, I found it in the old closet at the house. It's pretty nice, huh? It fits great. He's like, I'm getting married in that in like a week. I booked it home, put it back, did the walk of shame. It is proof that Ben has been born again of God the Spirit because he, he, like, he didn't murder me and we continued to be friends after that. There's so much more to it than that. I'm so tempted to go further, but we're still friends all is well. Um, so it's, it's really great to be here. This is really an honor. Um, so, so with that, this, this text, uh, you know, I was just singing Cameron's praises because apparently he has a reputation for being one who doesn't rest well. Uh, he called me from Florida just a few days ago. He said, my toes are in the sand, but I wanted to make sure that you were doing okay. And I was like, hey, that's really commendable. Right on, bro. But then after all that, I come to find out he didn't give me the, all the text that I was supposed to preach on. I just found that out. He gave me chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. So we can give him a hard time about that later. We're just going to stick to those three verses. Um, and so with those three verses, you know, rest. Um, I am inherently terrible at rest. I'm comprehensively terrible at rest because there's always something more to do. There's a window pane on the side of my house that I stripped and I've never repainted. And every time I come home, I see it. And I, would, I should just paint it, but I haven't. And so every time I get done with something, there's that window pane in the back of my head. You know, I know that I can go do it. There's a million things that come into our minds that keep us from resting. And I am wholly unqualified to teach on this text. But I think that, I think that Jesus is talking about something more here than our propensity to busy ourselves with, with <laughs> seemingly endless things. As I, was, as I was praying over this text and as I was reading it again and again and again and knowing the story of Jesus's life and knowing why Jesus came and who Jesus is and what it is that he's done this this text and, and you know I've, I've found this to be true with with preaching I'm, I'm, I'm a total novice I've, I've been doing it just for a couple of years but I've that I've, I've learned that with any text in the Bible there seems to be this this point where like here's the the main the main thrust of the text like I'm a glass guy you know I did glass for 15 years and when when a baseball goes through a window there's the initial point of contact you know that's where that's where the that's where the that's where the baseball broke through it's where it made its point of entry but then there's all these little runs there's all these little spider webs and every text of the bible is kind of like that there's the main thrust but you could talk about all sorts of stuff because the word of god is living and active and it's sufficient for everything and so as i was considering that i was considering this text what jesus I think is speaking to here. I think that he's saying a lot. I think that you could you could preach on just even just these three verses, 28, 29, and 30, for a month at least just to get started. Um, but I think I think the real point of entry, the point of contact with this text is is Jesus is addressing a holistic and, and comprehensive travail of the soul, like not not an unrest that it, that is that's fixed by doing your home projects or something like that. There's a, there's a deeper unrest. There's an unrest of the soul. There's a deep, unsatisfied longing. There's a travail. There's a hurt. There's a hole that exists. There's an absence that exists. And I think that this is what Jesus is talking about. I think this is what he's referring to. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, or maybe, you're, maybe you're, your text says who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Jesus is saying this because it's no, it's no mystery, it's no joke that life is deeply unsettling. Life hurts. In a million different ways, life hurts. In a million different ways, life is uncomfortable. In a million different ways, we have reason to seek rest and to seek reprieve or to even seek salvation. And the ways that people have done that have been endless throughout human history. And I, I think that some of the people in the immediate audience that, where Jesus was speaking had the burden, they had the, the heavy, laden weight of thinking, my way out of this, my way to rest, my way to holistic reprieve, my way to salvation is to do the law of God in every jot and every tittle, to hold fast to, 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 the, to, to the commands of the Lord, that carpet is going to get me. I'm going to stay on this side. The commands of the Lord and, and to do it so well that I earn my salvation. I'll make God owe me something. I'll, I'll earn my way into his kingdom. And we know that the Pharisees definitely thought that. The Pharisees felt that. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees even taught that. Jesus himself in, in Matthew 23. <laughs> I remember the, no, the last time you guys have ever, read, ever read Matthew 23. But it, it leaves you with a sunburn. It's intense. Jesus is calling out the religious leaders of the day and he says, he says of them, he says, they tie up heavy burdens for, them, for, for others to bear, but they themselves, after laying weight on others' shoulders, are unwilling themselves to lift even a finger to lend help. They, they lay the law on the people. This is what you've got to do. This is, what the, this is a, a religion of prohibition or a religion of practice, and you must do this. And so fastidious were the religious leaders of the day that they actually took something good, like something that was actually a legitimate command of the, of, of the Lord to the people of Israel, the, the command of Sabbath. Take a day off. Take the seventh year off. Rest. Like, really rest. And the, and the Pharisees got so muddled up with the, the rule of the law that they forgot about the heart of the law. And they surrounded the law with a bunch of laws. They, they actually added 39 different categories of what it means to, to rest. And one of them, there, there was, I, I used to have a lot of them memorized because a lot of them are just so funny. They're, they're ridiculous to the point that they're actually comical. But one of them was that if you were a person who had a prosthetic limb, there was a question as to whether or not it was, it was against the law to carry your prosthetic limb on the Sabbath because it was quote-unquote carrying something. So it just, it, it, just, it just makes the point that the law, while good and has a purpose, we are unable to keep it. And then it gets muddled up with human sin and it's absolutely nothing but a burden. And so people actually thought, if I adopt this prohibition or if I adopt this practice and if I do that practice well enough or if I do that prohibition well enough or abstain from that prohibition consistently enough or well enough that I might actually be able to earn my, or earn my way into the Lord's eternal heaven. I'll just do the rules. I'll do the law. What a, and I can't, you know, we have a time limit here, so I can't expound on this too much, but how suffocatingly... You know, people... You know, there's still this, there's still this, this vein in our culture. There's still this belief to this day. Well, I, you know, I'm a generally good person, and I think that my good actions will outweigh my bad. And if there is a God, and if He is a judge, and if anything that I do has any consequence whatsoever, I, I think that my good will outweigh my bad. I think I'll be okay. And it's, it's said almost as this, like, relief... 
because we compare ourselves. We're like, well, I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer and I'm not Hitler. Like, those are the, always the two that people use. It's like, that's really your standard. <laughs> You're not Hitler. You're not Jeffrey Dahmer. I would suggest that whenever you actually compare yourself to the holy and living God of the, of the, the thrice holy living God of the universe, we're a lot closer to Dahmer than we care to admit. It's a suffocating, terrifying reality to think I can do this on my own strength. But there's people in Jesus' day, there's people today who thought that's, that's what I can do. And that is no way to rest. That is the antidote to absolute anxiety and terror. Peter actually addresses this in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. There's a group of people who come in and they say, yeah, yeah, what Jesus did was good, but to be saved, you also have to become circumcised. You gotta do something. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make up for that little, that little piece that Jesus missed, that little piece that Jesus wasn't sufficient for. You've got to do that with some sort of work or action. And Peter calls these people out and he actually says, why are you placing a yoke of burden on the shoulders of the disciples who neither we nor our fathers were able to bear, the weight of earning it is a weight that is unbearable. It is impossible. And to think that you can do it is a delusion, and to try to do it is anything but restful. I mean, even the Sabbath, it's like, well, did I rest enough? Did I rest well enough? I've seen pictures of a prosthetic toe that was dug up in an archaeological site. What if somebody carried that toe around on their foot? It's actually an incredible prosthetic toe for being the, it was, it was in the BC area. Amazing technology they had even back then. But somebody was carrying that around on their foot. That could have been considered work. To earn it, did I do enough? Did I tithe enough? Did I keep my mouth shut enough? Did I speak enough when I should have? Did I rest well enough? You can see very quickly how the air gets sucked out of the room and why Jesus is sufficient to save and why Peter was like, stop laying a yoke of burden on top of us. We are unable to bear it. But that's what some people did. That's not as common in our day. Our day has more of a, uh, I, don't have a I don't have a clever term for it, but, but I think of it as sort of a, a religion turned inward. My, my greatest and most effective and flourishing potential is lying dormant within myself somewhere and if I just got the right job, then I could relax. If I just got that gold record or the platinum record or if I just got the record deal or if I just had got into that relationship or if I could just get out of this country and move to that country and be under that, that style of government or even if I could just move to another city, the, the quote-unquote right city, then whenever I got that, achieved that, had that, whatever that thing is, then... I can rest, I can breathe deep, then I'm okay. That's, that's more our culture, that's more, that's more Western, especially Pacific Northwest, that's what we, that's what we think. My truest self, once, it's, once my truest self is achieved, then I can take a deep breath and I can rest and I'm okay. And from here on out, I'm on cloud nine. It's kind of what Disney taught us as kids, those of you who grew up in the 80s and 90s. There's a little love story, they get on a boat, they sail off into the sunset and it's happily ever after, right? Like, well, that, that's actually deep in our psyche. We think that. I'm going to earn it by religious practice or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to achieve it by, by, by throwing off religion and tradition in general. I'm going to find my truest self and then I can rest and then I can breathe deep. We tend to think that I'm okay in the chaos because life is very chaotic, but I'll be okay in the chaos so long as I have 
this. We need, we need something over us. We need protection. We need achievement. We need our name on a plaque or we need a title with a PhD or, or, the, or, or screaming fans by the thousands. We need something. And then we think, I'll be okay. I'm okay in the chaos if I have this. And you cannot rest until you find it. You know, I mean, the guys, Ben and Wesley and, and Josh Wilder, I mean, those guys, you know, one of the most amazing and awkward things about being a pastor in the city where I grew up is that there are so many people here who's, who know my problems. There are people here who have driven me home when I was too drunk to drive. They saw the mess and the mayhem that I was making out of my life. And I, and I can tell you today that the reason why I was making such a mess and so much mayhem out of my life is because I was not resting. I was anxious, I was bitter, I was cynical, I was looking for something. And for me specifically, it was a new city, a new girlfriend, and the right job. If I had those things, I would be okay. If I had those things, then me and God would be, would be okay. We'd be alright. I could, I could be okay with God so long as He provided my demands. And my demands were these very specific corporeal and terrestrial circumstances. And I could not rest until I had them, and it ate me alive. And I gave, my, my, gave myself to alcohol and to drugs for years because I was unrestful, because I needed circumstances. And there's no guarantee, it's the problem with the world, is there's no guarantee as talented, as young, as bright and, and, and educated as you might be, there's no guarantee that those circumstances are ever, ever going to manifest for you. I know people who are some of the most talented musicians that I've ever known. And it, it seems like, I mean, even like way better than the, the guys and gals who are, you know, like Billie Eilish famous. And they can't get an audience. It's just, the, it's just this weird thing about the world. And we think I can rest when this, this thing happens, but there's no guarantee that this thing's going to happen. And so we have to take our eyes away from our circumstances. Jesus says, so this is what I mean, Jesus is speaking to something that's deep, deeper than the window that's not painted yet. Deeper than that. He's, deeping to, he's, he's speaking to a deep travail in the human soul, and he says that he is the one who can give rest to that travail. He is the one who can settle the waters. He says, I will give rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And another thing that our culture does, I, th I think um, another common misconception is that rest is synonymous with lack of effort or lack of responsibility or, or lack, of, uh, lack of, of movement, lack of work, lack of labor. Rest is not having to do anything. I had a friend who, I remember this was his thing, his, when I worked in the glass business, there was this guy who used to, he was a delivery truck driver, and I saw him almost every day. I saw him probably three or four days a week, and his name was Louie. And he was, his name was very fitting. He was this, he had this, his, he had this long hair, he had this big, big tweeted mustache, he would smoke these long white cigarettes, and he would show up on the job, and he would just kind of saunter over. Hey man, how's it going? What's you doing? Ah, oh, it's cool. My crystals and my weed and my stuff. Man, I'm just enjoying the day. Oh, all right, I'm gonna try to get this glass off, man. I'm gonna hustle to try to get you out of here. Ah, it's chill, bro. I get paid by the hour. And he'd kick his feet up, and he was just a, he was just a relaxed dude. 
And I remember it came time for Louis to retire and he told me, he's like, I got my little, I got my double wide, I got my wife, I got my weed, we got a little place down by the river, we bought some property out by the Deschutes and I'm just gonna spend my glory days rolling blunts, kicking my feet up and catching fish and I'm gonna die a happy man. And I remember like, he was telling me this at this time in my life when I was actually, it was just, it was just perfect. I was just coming and this was 2010 and I was just coming into uh, I was grappling with my own faith and my mortality and eternity and heaven and hell and Jesus and the devil and we're all going to die and what does that mean? I was grappling with that heavy just at that moment. It's actually at the same exact time that I came into Door of Hope. And I remember being so, I was like, but Louis, your feet kicked up by the water with your double wide and your, your morning instant coffee and, and hanging with your sweetheart by the water, that sounds great, but, but bro, you're still going to die. That doesn't like, that doesn't disrupt your peace by the river. You're gonna die, Louie. You're 70 years old. Like, I hate to break it to you, but it's gonna like, and you smoke a pack a day. Like, it's like you're not doing yourself any favors, man. Ah, relax, man. You're harsh in my buzz. Like, he just didn't, he didn't get it. He didn't want to hear it. But I was like, I was in a, I was in heavy travail because I was like, the circumstances don't matter, man. It doesn't matter how good your life is. It doesn't matter if you're Billie Eilish. It doesn't matter if you've got a, if you've got a, a place by the river. There's no rest apart from Jesus. There's none. There's no real rest apart from Jesus. You can be in the most chaotic environment imaginable, like Peter and Paul, and be at complete rest. Or you can be in the most sustained and comfortable and promising of circumstances with health and with wealth and be completely, completely disturbed and at unrest and I think that the celebrities of our day prove that to us Jesus speaks of this specifically in in Luke chapter 12 I want to read the I want to read some verses to you Jesus told a parable he says he says there was a rich man who was very whose land was very productive and he began reasoning to himself saying what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops and he said this is what I'll do I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and there I will store my grain and my goods. And then I will say to my soul, here it is, verse 19, Luke 12, 19. Here's the mistake we make. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. So take your ease. Rest. You got stuff. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God came to him and said, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you prepared? Which, by the way, probably quoting Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 18 and 19, says the same thing. Who will own what you have prepared? And so it is to the one who stores up treasure for himself, and yet is not rich towards God. And man, I didn't know that verse when I was talking to Louis. But that's what I was feeling. Apart from Jesus, there is no rest because you still have to deal with the fact that as good as your circumstances will are or could be, you will lose them like that. There's no guarantee that you'll get them in the first place and then once you do, you gotta stress about keeping them. That's not restful. And then you're gonna die. And that may not be restful for an eternity if you don't know Jesus. You fool, Jesus says. It's not a lack of work that is the point. It's not getting the right gig, the right job, the right husband or wife or number of kids. It's not where it is. There's something in us that's always aware that we're going to die. 
And even in secular literature, one of my, one of my favorite minds outside of the Christian world, and I don't, I don't delve into psychology or, 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 or um, psychoanalytics all that much, but Ernest Becker uh, wrote a book. He was an anthropologist, and he died, he died in 1974. He died in 1975, and he published a book in 1974 called The Denial of Death, in which he describes what he calls the rumble of panic that's underneath everything. And what he, what he says is that that's, that's death. No matter what you do, there's always that understanding that someday is going to be the last day. And that's what Jesus is referring to. You can't get it through money. You can't get it through resources. You store up your barns. You buy bigger barns. You buy a, a double wide and you go down to the river and you catch trout all day at the Deschutes. Jesus is speaking to something that goes beyond that and goes deeper than that. And without him, there is no rest at all. There's maybe the, the deception or the illusion of rest, but that's all it is. Because there is no rest in anyone except Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I will give you rest. Now that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't mean not working. We're going to talk about in a minute what that does mean, but it, it actually means to work because then he, then he says, he says, I will give you rest, verse 29, so take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. To, to yoke up to Jesus is to come to him. Come to me all who are weary, take my yoke upon you. That, that, means, that means a lot. There's a lot in there. But the foundation of it is believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then you yoke up to him. The yokes were designed, and I know you guys have heard Jesus was a carpenter, and the likelihood that he, that he made yokes is really high. He probably made yokes. And a yoke was designed, it was fitted, custom fitted for each animal. And there was actually people that, that wore yokes. People would, would put their water buckets on a yoke over their shoulders to disperse the weight. Animals would go two by two in a yoke so that they would work together. It would disperse the load. And the yoke was designed specifically to make the work easier by placing the weight on your shoulders, yes, but designed in such a way that it didn't cut into the animal's skin. It didn't cause blisters. It didn't cause any irritating rubbing. It was work, but it was work at ease. We still labor as Christians. There's nothing that Christians get out of. We do everything that everybody else does. We have to pay our bills. We have to raise our kids. We have to do, what, relationship maintenance and yard maintenance and flat tires and stuck in traffic and kidney stones and ulcers and headaches and migraines. We have to do everything that the world does. We have to deal with all the same stuff that the world does. Who we work for is different. And who's working with us is different. And then on top of just, your, just the daily grind of being a human, right? Just the, the mortal coil of life. We have the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Love your enemies. Pray for those who, who, who persecute you. Pray for those who, who curse you and say all sorts of evil things against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for greatest reward in heaven. We're called to even a higher standard than, than your typical cat around the block, you know? The work does not stop. But the motivation for the work is entirely different. We're not working because we need to earn God's favor. We're not working because we need to get a place at the table. We're not working so that he finally goes, okay, grasshopper, that's enough. You've gotten it. We're motivated by love. We're motivated by gratitude. We're mo motivated by a victory that is already ours and is given to us as a gift in Jesus, by Jesus. Romans 8, 16, that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God. And if we're sons and daughters of God, we're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. We have eternity 
guaranteed. We're not working from a place of, well, I hope this really works out so I can get my double wide by the river. We're working with the absolute promise. What, what does First Peter say? That there is an inheritance for us, guaranteed inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading with each other and with Jesus forever. Promised. Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment or the guarantee, depending on your translation, of our inheritance until we take possession of it. We don't work for that. That's a gift. It's given. And then that love and that affection and that motivation is a pretty good energy to keep us obedient and to keep us working alongside Jesus. We yoke up with Him. You got your arms over the yoke and you look over and you have Jesus there. He's with you. He's in you by the power of His Spirit. The work does not stop. This is what he really means when he says rest. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And there it is. That's a profound statement. You will find rest not from, from having to paint the window pane and having to teach your kid how to not chew on the coffee table and which is what we're in the middle of right now. It's not about the work of saving up 401k or retirement. Those are all good things. There's nothing, it's all good stuff. It's not your God. It's gone the minute you are. Those are good things. Jesus is talking about a holistic and a comprehensive unsettling in your soul. He's there to put rest to that. Have you ever felt that? an ache in your soul. It's, it's the rest that we lost when Eden was interrupted by sin. Sin is what brought separation from God and from that comes all suffering and all atrophy and all decay and all manipulation and lying and death. It comes from sin. That is what interrupts our rest, our communion with the living God. Eden was disrupted. Our rest was taken away. Sin entered the picture. And Jesus lifted the heaviest load. Work? Yeah, we, yes. Yes, we will. We will work. We will labor. Our motivation is different. Our boss is different. Well, I mean, ultimately, he's our boss whether we know it or not, right? But we're, we sink up with him. And Jesus did all the heavy lifting when he took that cross to Calvary. That's what we couldn't do. That's what we could never do. And he did it for us. He accomplished for us what we could never accomplish in ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.21 I mean, here is the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin so that. Why did Jesus do that? Why did the God who holds the sun up in the sky and the earth on its tilt and gravity and capillary action and evaporation and rainfall and clouds, all the crazy, crazy, crazy stuff that the world just, the, the world spins every single day and it works perfectly. That God, why did he become sin? Why would he do that? He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Good grief. There's some rest. That thing that we're striving for, that we're, that, that we're travailing for, it's done. Jesus did it. He carried the heaviest load when he went to the cross and he continues to work in us through 
his abiding spirit. God the Spirit, come and indwelling inside of us. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work, and yet he works in us. It's a, it's a wild mystery. But our motivation staying the same, the affection for Jesus remaining, a love for him, a desire to serve him and not self, to serve him and not the flesh. That, that battle, that Galatians 5.17, man, Galatians 5.17 is my life verse because it says, even though you're a Christian, even though you've been born again, your heart is still going to tell you all sorts of dirty deeds to do for dirt cheap. And you have to fight that. And that fight is proof of God the Spirit being alive inside of you. But man, I don't think that there's an honest Christian in this room who's been saved for more than a week who can't say that it's hard work. But the continuing... The, what's, that, what's that Eugene Peterson book? A Long Obedience in a Single Direction or something like that? It's, a, it's the long haul and it is hard. And Jesus works in us and through us to take even the difficulties, even the bad stuff, even the ugly stuff, even the stuff that hurts you so bad that all you have to turn to is the Psalms, right? That's what those are all about. Even that he can turn around to not only bless us in the future, but to bless us here and now and to use that to bless others. The work is hard, but we're not working to get it anymore. We're guaranteed we have it. We have Him. We have home. The biggest problem in our lives as Christians is that we're homesick and we're on our way. And the work along the way is heavy, but we're yoked with Jesus. He is the exact presence that is our peace. Remember in uh, Acts 3, Peter's preaching and, and he says, repent of your sins and be baptized and turn to the Lord so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's, that's the key. There it is. From the presence of the Lord. He is with you. He is in you. He is for you. Even the things that hurt, He is redeeming. Revelation 21 describes heaven as a place where there's no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more tears, so the former things have passed away. That's a promise. And so come what may. You know, Jesus in the boat, right? Come what may. A storm on the ocean. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is, <laughs> is asleep in the middle, of a, the middle of a storm on the water. His boys are freaking out. And Jesus is asleep. Not because his conditions were not good. And his conditions were actually far, far worse than anybody possibly imagined because he was also heading towards the cross. And he knew it. And he's asleep. Because even in that trouble, even in that travail, even in that, that, that place that is scary, he trusted in the Father that much. Oh, Jesus, I want that. I want that. Speaking about the work and speaking about what ine inevitably comes with work, which is typically anxiety and pain and, and uh, disappointment, loss, sadness, all of these things are intertwined with with the curse of the ground and, and sin and all of that. And talking about it as, as a pastor, one of the sides of the coin is to tell people, Jesus is working this for your good. Second Corinthians, that little, that little house church that Alexander mentioned, our, our key verse, while it lasted, was while the church, while that little, while that little group lasted, the, the, the verse that we landed on, we actually had these little coffee mugs made and we put the verse on the side. It was 2 Corinthians 4, 16. 
and following. It says that this light and momentary affliction is actually preparing for you a weight of glory beyond all comprehension, which means that every, every hurt, every suffering, every, every insomnia, every stubbed toe, every loss of a parent or of a child, every illness, every disease is being woven together by the good physician to be an eternity that is beyond all of the, the wildest thing that you can imagine. So Paul says, stop looking at what is seen, start looking at what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. That's one side of the coin that can be helpful. People sometimes hear that and they say, yes and amen, this hurts, but I trust Jesus in the midst of it and something really, really great is going to come out of it either here, right now, or definitely in the future heaven forever. The other side of that coin is to sometimes just tell people it's okay to, it's okay to hurt. You don't need an answer. You don't need to be told to do better or to read more. Have more faith or read more of your Bible. I mean, sure, keep doing those things. But sometimes you just need to be a shoulder for someone to cry on and tell them you're yoked with Jesus. He hates that you're hurting. Look at him in John 11. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead and he knows it and he's crying because our death, our sickness, our sin, our lack of faith, our disturbances disturb him because he's a father. Maybe you just need to hear that today. He's, he's yoked up with you. He's with you. And he's crying with you. And maybe you need to hear he's crying with you and he's working. He's not scared. He feels you. That's what the Psalms are all about. Depression, anxiety, hurt, anger, doubt, in the form of prayer, in written. He, he knows us. He wants to hear from us. He's with you and he's working. And you know, I, I saw this. Uh, very poignantly because you know you you might be in the middle of something right now that I don't understand and I wouldn't get it even if you told me because our hearts are just that deep you know even the Spirit of God has to intercede with groaning too deep for words because we sometimes don't even know how to express what it is that we're feeling in this work (laughs) called life and if you're in the middle of it right now hear that and and also remember who's looking out for you we we put our hope of rest our hope of peace our hope of quiet and reprieve in these things you know once i get that job or i get that girlfriend or or i get rid of this illness once i get better once i once i feel good once my once my children get out of this weird rebellious stage that they're in whatever the thing might be then i can breathe then the weight comes off and i can rest that may never happen, guys. And my burden this morning, and I think that what Jesus is saying in this text is even still, He gives you rest. You might be on a storm in a boat. You might be dying of cancer. And I saw this firsthand. What it is that's protecting you, what it is that you're under, what it is that, well, once I get this thing, I feel safe. And, I, you know, I'm not immune to it. I've got a wonderful wife. I've got this cutest little baby girl on all the planet. I was just telling, I was just telling Josh, she's, I think, auditioning for a Screamo ska band. And she practices between 1 and 3 a.m. She just, and it's awful. Oh, and it's so great. I just, and I know it. I know it's good. I know these are the golden years. That could go away. I know it could. I know the sense of protection because, well, I've got my family, so I'm good. Well, I watched my dad, some of you know this, I watched my dad lose everything that he had to, 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 to give him some sense of rest. 
My dad was eaten away by cancer an inch at a time, and he passed away almost two years ago, and I watched him die completely at rest because he knew who was looking over him. And there's this story about Jesus. You know, whenever I'm, when I'm feeling the burn about something, I think of the story about Jesus. It's in John chapter 18, but it, but it, it, it goes back, and I'll, I'll close out with this, with this story about Jesus. Um, it's in John 18, but it, it starts in John 6. Jesus is on the Golan Heights, the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it's his, it's his famous miracle where he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. You're looking at scholars put the number of about uh, 20,000 20, people, and he turns a kid's sack lunch into a buffet for 20,000 people, and they're so hyped. I mean, this was before Costco. This was before freezers. This was before preservatives. Like, these people had to work hard for their food every single day, and this Jewish carpenter comes out of the hills of, of Galilee and just can make bread miraculously. I'll follow that guy anywhere. But there's a lesson there. It's, it's John 6. I don't want to go too far into it, but Jesus leaves. They, they, they say this is the prophet. They, uh, they identify Jesus properly from, the, from Deuteronomy, the prophet that's greater than Moses. They say this is him. And it says that they were going to force him to become king, but he dips. He goes up into the hills and he hides. And so they scramble around looking for him. And then there's the famous story of Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the night going back to Capernaum to get away from the people and to hook the homies up on the boat with a lesson in faith. He leaves though. All the people, 20,000 people. Have, ever, have you ever been in a room or, a, or in, a, in a stadium or on, on a hillside where 20,000 people are like, this is the man? I haven't. It never will happen. That's a, that's a, I mean, talk about being tempted in every way that we are. And Jesus left. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. That's a cool story. There's a lot there. It's even compounded when you consider John 18. It's the last night of Jesus' life with his disciples before the crucifixion. He has told them that one of them are going to betray him. Judas leaves and Jesus doesn't hide. He doesn't go away. He goes to, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says that that was a common place where they would gather. Judas knew where to find him. Jesus didn't hide. Judas goes to the temple. He gets, most scholars and commentators put the number at about 900 between the Roman soldiers and the temple police because Jesus has a price on his head at this point. And they go up to the, mount, go up to the mountain and they crawl up the side of it, the mountain, or to, the garden, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then no doubt it's the middle of the night. They have torches. Jesus can see them coming and he doesn't hide. He doesn't run. They want to force him to become king. They had the wrong idea about king and he leaves. They're coming up to kill him and he stays put. And then it gets even more intense because they actually get to the garden and the disciples are standing here and the, nine, the 800 and 900 soldiers and temple police are standing here and it says in John 18.4 that Jesus, knowing everything that was going to come upon him, stepped forward. He filled that gap in. The gap between the soldiers and his followers. Jesus stepped forward. That's, a man, that's, my, that's my boss. That's my king. That guy. That's my God. If he says jump, I say how high. That is, that makes me worship him. And he said to them, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus. And he said, I am he. And this is wild. You know, this, is, this isn't really necessary for this morning. But it is crazy. The 900 hardened battle veterans fall down. Just at a word. It's like, are you sure you want to do this? Okay. 
900 temple police and Roman soldiers fall to the ground. Jesus is just saying, I am he. They still, and then he says, if you're, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. That is what he does. That is who was looking over my dad. That is who is looking over you. He stepped in the gap. He who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Come to me, all who are weary. Put my yoke upon you. You will have rest for your souls forever. A heart rest, an eternal rest, a guaranteed rest. Come what may. Roman soldiers, temple police, storms on the ocean. I don't know. My dad dying of cancer. Thing is, man, I watched my dad worship as he died. Our outer person is wasting away. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. And my dad knew that. And I watched him die with a twinkle in his eye because he knew, I'm out of here. I'm going home. I'll see you there. It was amazing to watch what the Lord did to him as he passed. And so I just share that because... What is it that you think is protecting you? Insurance? 401k? Retirement? The hope that I'm going to be in the double wide with a blunt by the river like Louie? Louie, I hope Louie shows up someday. I don't know where he is. I go to the Deschutes River and look for a double wide, I guess. Jesus, that one who steps between, when it was against him, Whenever, they knew, whenever he knew that they were coming to kill him, he stepped in the gap for us. He who knew no sin became sin. Take his yoke upon you, and you will have rest for your souls no matter what happens in your circumstances. He's that good. Amen? Amen. Let's bow in prayer.